welcome to Las Doctoras podcast. Led by our intuition, we are creating space for conversations, asking critical questions, and interrogating the oppressive systems of power we live in. We are your hosts. I am Dr. Renee Limas, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a Cancer sun and moon with Pisces rising, mother of water. I am Dr. Christina Rose, pronouns she, they, Virgo sun, Aquarius moon, Gemini rising, mother of earth. We are grounded in a connection to ancestral wisdom. Our work is to heal the wounds of generational trauma that is of white male and cis hetero supremacy, all while we create a way of being that celebrates, truly revels in the joy of our families and our community. Join us on our journey, not toward perfection, but into reflection, immersed in compassionate self-awareness and courageous action. Come, sit at our kitchen table, sip on some tequila with us, and let's change our world. Salud! Welcome, ready, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Welcome to Las Doctoras podcast episode. Who knows what? Um, <laughs> this is going to actually be our last episode for season four. So we're really mm-hmm. excited to be closing it very um, strongly with an amazing guest. Um, so I think we're going to just jump right into it and ask our guest to introduce themselves um and then uh, we'll get into the topic for the episode welcome monica simpson oh my gosh i am so excited i am over here just grinning from ear to ear so excited to be in conversation with you all and hello to all of your amazing listeners um i am monica simpson i am mago by she her pronouns um i am a black lesbian southern to the core woman um i grew up in the rural south and i'm extremely proud of that um i am a cancer leo cuss just for those who are really interested in that me too Uh, are you oh my god (laughs) when's your birthday july 19th me too (laughs) you're kidding me renee (laughs) oh my god oh Mm. so cancer leo cuss i'm a virgo rising and my moon is in gemini it's a lot going on over here pray for me i love it i got that virgo gemini energy um representing on the side so welcome 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I always like to say my Venus too, because it is where the heart space is. And my Venus is also in cancer. I am a sap at the end of the Uh, day, extremely overly emotionally charged all the time, but I love with my heart. I love, I mean, my heart is on my chart all the time. Yeah. yeah. Renee, Renee, please don't tell me that your, your Venus is also in cancer. I don't think so. But Renee, I I think I have a, I think I do think I have a water Venus, but I don't think it's in Cancer. I'm not even okay. And I also like to tell people I'm a fine ass auntie. I um mm-hmm. I take being an auntie very seriously. Um, I don't know if I will eventually have kids or not. Um, I'm still kind of open to the idea, but I am very mm-hmm. committed to being an auntie, and I like to call myself yeah. a fine ass one at that. So that's just a little bit about who I am. I am super committed to sexual and reproductive justice. I've been doing social justice work for well over 20 years, right? I started this work mm-hmm. when I came out at my undergrad. I went to an HBCU um, as this very out militant Black lesbian, and my social mm-hmm. justice journey has just 
grown over these years to go across many different areas of work. And it's now landed me in my political home that I am really grateful for every single day. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Mm. Oh my gosh. I love it so much. Um, I'm just feeling that Virgo rising. I'm really seeing it right now. It's just like (laughs) in it and like, yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cancer. I hear you about being all in the heart. I mean, I I feel like that's why we do what we do. Right. Um, so we want to jump into Christine and I want to really start with our appreciation, love, admiration of sister song. So we are both women's studies professors. And so I feel like reproductive justice is just always innate to the work that we do. I had in every class I teach, Mm-hmm. You know, in every semester mm-hmm. I have a week on reproductive mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. and Amazing. I bring up, I bring up the sister song website and I'm like, this is, you know, the definition of it. And really, and I um, actually use that as like the framework for social justice altogether, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of the yes. framework that's used, I'm like, this is really what social justice at large is. Um, and so I just, so for, and um, Christine and I have been, um, our work as, you know, podcasters and, you know, even outside of the university, reproductive justice has been central to our work since day one. And mm-hmm. so we feel like this is definitely a full circle moment. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we have um, the queens <laughs> of, of reproductive mm-hmm. justice here with us. So we're really, really excited um, to have you here with us. I think it's a part of our auntie work too, I want to say, like, I love that, you know, I think, you know, even before I became a parent, I was an auntie for so long, and to my students, to in my community, Mm -hmm. and, you know, really um, working um, at that community level on reproductive justice, it became very much, though, a part of my, uh, I researched more when I was asked to teach a class on marriage and mothering, and mm-hmm. um, at the university, and I had, um, right, all Black and Latine women of color um, coming into my classroom, and we were able to just really dive into Sister Song yeah. and all the work that you've done, so um, it is quite a full circle, you know, here in this conversation. So we're just fangirling for a moment. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, y'all, like, you know, this work is so massive, and it, you know, yeah. it's just all-consuming sometimes, so to be able to zone out and just connect with people who, you know, get connected to your work, you know, and, and all the kinds of ways that people get connected to it and to hear folks stories as to how they get connected is just always it just like re-energizes me as a leader in doing this work so I appreciate y'all um just sharing your stories with me we start all of our trainings off at Sister Song with this line we all have a story to tell Mm. and stories are just you know they they are you know our fuel they are you know that's what drives us what moves us in this work and so again you all's entry points to this work and how you're continuing to make reproductive justice and in your in your work an entry point for folks is just powerful to hear so thank you thank you thank you Thank you. you are speaking Thank you. our language too. Which is so wonderful. We teach the classes on, you know, writing our story, sacred writing and stepping into that. So this is beautiful. So yeah, it's a particularly um, uh, foundational conversation to have at this time in history too. So oh my um, gosh, I know when we, I think when we first um, were contacted, you know, to create this interview, it was like before, you know, mm-hmm. stuff was going mm-hmm. down and then it was like in the middle and now we're like in this 
really interesting time of what's, you know, what's going down. But I think we want to start with just if you can tell, you know, our listeners, um, what is like a basic sort of definition of what reproductive justice is? Because I think that um, there's often this sort of mainstream idea of like reproductive rights Mm -hmm. and how, you know, when we say reproductive justice, there is a little bit of a distinction there. So if you would, yeah, um, yeah. go for it. So, you know, yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, we talk about this conversation of reproductive rights, it really often begins and ends sometimes with like access to abortion and mostly Mm -hmm. for like cisgendered white women, right? It's been like Mm -hmm. white mainstream organizations Mm -hmm. that have like have the most access, the most resources to be able to really shape the narrative around what reproductive health and rights are in this country. Um, but we know like under Roe, which we know for so many of us that do this work from a reproductive justice perspective, we've always said that Roe has been the floor for us because you know just having this legal right doesn't you know ensure access, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, we know our communities struggled and continue to struggle, right? You know, even with Roe being in place, not to say that we still don't need it, right? Because the legal right is important. Um, But that is what really created this opportunity for Black women in particular to come together back in 1994 as they were like thinking about healthcare reform and what we needed to really start to talk about um, in terms of like the full spectrum of the healthcare that we need for our lives. And they created this term reproductive justice because they were looking at sexual and reproductive health and rights in connection to the very real social justice issues that they were having to navigate every single day in their communities from economic security um, to, you know, making sure that food was on the table, that they had jobs, like all of these different things were coming into play. Um, And they all have an impact on how we make decisions about our reproductive futures at the end of the day, right? And so whatever that future looks like for folks. Um, But the way that we, you know, define reproductive justice in in a way that hopefully is clearer if it's to people, right? Because when we talk about intersectionality, when we talk about human rights, like that can actually be a little hard for folks to just take in, right? Because it is very, um, it's all encompassing, right? But the way that we define it is that reproductive justice is the human right to bodily autonomy, right? The human mm-hmm. right to be able to have the children that we want in the ways that we want to prevent or end pregnancies without shame, but with dignity, right? Mm-hmm. And to be able to parent and protect our children, you know, in healthy and safe environments. Like that's really mm-hmm. at the core of our work every single day, which is mm-hmm. intersectional, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. deeply rooted in the human rights framework, which is incredibly mm-hmm. important to the foundation of this movement, right? Um, And that's really what we organize around every single day. And so it's not just really focused on, you know, abortion access, because that is not the totality of our lives, right? We actually have to have access to so much more um, and our rights, you know, around everything that our human rights around everything that we need um, also has to be centered as we think about all of these issues. Self-sovereignty. I love it. Mm -hmm. Period. That's it. That's all. I mean, you say <laughs> you said 1994. In my head, that doesn't seem like it was that long ago. One, <laughs> even though I mean, we're in 2022. I'm like, oh, shit. but um, it just feels like it's, you know, it, it's so foundational at this point that it feels like yeah. it's, you know, this has been something. But yeah, I'm like, wow, 94. Again, it feels like it's not that long ago, but we're, we're older. We're older, we're older than you think. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I'm like some of our students were not even born. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're, born yet. Not, we're not yeah. even born yet. So, <laughs> yeah, but this is that we, we find though. We all right. This, we're, we're, we're in our prime. We are in our prime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about story, right. Um, yeah. And we were just coming into a, a brief tale of, you know, how I was given this class marriage and mothering. And I was trying to really deconstruct that and offer something that was much more accessible and inclusive. Um, turning to your work, turning to the work. How did you, would you mind sharing just a little bit of your story, how yeah. you came into this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I feel like my, my journey has been very interesting, right? Um, I, again, I grew up in the rural South. And so um, I grew up in like a one stoplight kind of town. And so, Mm. you know, for us, like the epicenter of our community in particular for black community um, that I grew up in, of course, was the black church. And so for me, you know, my organizing Mm. roots, how I started to learn what that even looked like, everything came from the church. But and as much, you know, as I loved, you know, learning how to lead and use my voice and all of that in the church, um, it was also the place where I saw like social justice issues come into play. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the language for them yet, but it's like how I started to see the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So I started to recognize that women were not able to preach behind the pulpit. They had to sit Mm -hmm. and stand on the side. And I'm like, what is this? Sexism, patriarchy. Right. Now I know this. (laughs) But at that time, I, I, it was just something that was just coming into my my understanding of like this this, this young preteen of like, wait a minute, something isn't right here. Um, mm-hmm. We also had, you know, this organist in my church that passed away very unexpectedly. Um, and I loved him. He was just such a powerful force in the church. Um, and when I asked my, you know, the elders in the church, like what happened? They was like, oh, he died of pneumonia. But no one wanted to talk about HIV. No one wanted to talk about AIDS. No one wanted to talk about LGBTQ um, community in our community because it was just so hidden. Like there was just no mm-hmm. way for folks to be able to really stand in their own power. Um, and then the the biggest thing that really turned me towards this work in particular um, that now I'm able to make connections to before graduating high school, nearly every girl was pregnant in my church before graduating high school. Mm-hmm. Almost every girl, <laughs> um, except for a handful of us, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, it's obvious that we are having sex, mm-hmm. obvious, mm-hmm. but we're not going <laughs> to talk about this at mm-hmm. all. And I mm-hmm. was one of those preteens absolutely having sex, right? Mm-hmm. I remember signing a prom promise that said I would not have sex at prom. And the only reason I signed the prom promise was because they also gave me a certificate to go to Pizza Hut to get a pizza. I just wanted mm-hmm. the pizza. I absolutely mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. sex on prom night, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It's just like these things. And so I, you know, I decided to leave my community. And what was important for me to know at that time was I knew that if I got pregnant before graduating high school, I would not leave my town. Like that was the Mm. thing. And I had this bigger vision for what I wanted to do with my life. So Mm -hmm. even though I was committed to having some sex because I was all up in this body (laughs) stuff, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I was like, well, we got to get condoms. And so I was like reading Cosmopolitan magazine, looking at movies. I became like my own mm-hmm. peer educator, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like wow. how we can safely have sex because nobody was giving us that information mm-hmm. at all. 
Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, I was able to make it out because I didn't get pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not say I made it out unscathed because I, I, I unfortunately had to deal with sexual assault, you know, different things like that, that also really shaped the way that I see the world and how and why I do the work that I do. Um, mm-hmm. But I came out while I was an undergrad. Um, I thought that was going to be this liberating experience. It wasn't. <laughs> um, it was very hard. It was not cool to be gay on a Black college campus in the early 90s, mm-hmm. 2000s. Um, and so I dropped out of college, you know, but it was just like this really interesting journey, but before dropping out, but then coming back, eventually one of my friends came to me and she's like, you know, I'm pregnant. I don't want to be. And I was like, well, girl, what you trying to say? Right. She's like, mm-hmm. well, I want to abortion. And I was like, no, we don't, black girls don't have abortions. We have our baby. So mm-hmm. you're going to be all right. We're going to take care of you. We'll help babysit the baby. And she's like, no, I don't want to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So she's like, I need some support. And she's like, of all people, I would think that you would be able to support mm. me because at that mm. point I was I, I was out. She's like, so you get it, right? Yeah. And I was like, damn, I don't get it though, <laughs> mm. right? And so I had this moment where I had to really put some things in check for myself. But I remember going with her, supporting her, and going with her to um, to the abortion clinic and seeing those protesters, and it all mm-hmm. started to come together for me: bodily Ooh. autonomy, our ability to make our own decisions. What is this? You know, it it really just laid the foundation for my social justice work beyond that moment. So that's yeah. a little bit of my story, but that's just kind of like you know, from the the early messages I got to how that pushed me to really just step into fully who, of who I am, but then also the contradictions that I still had to like move through, right? As I was, you know, didn't realize how much my environment really shaped the way that I looked at the world, even though I had made this big decision to come out as a black ass lesbian, right? So <laughs> yeah, that- Yeah, that, that, I-, I- we, I mean, we resonate so much yes, with, so much. you know, I, I was raised Catholic, Christina raised fundamental Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a Catholic, an all girl Catholic school where several people ended up pregnant, you know, senior year. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, and there is the whole thing of, uh, there was like a whole in the handbook, you know, what a protocol, you know, and I'm like, uh-huh. so what's, you know, wow. what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, also deep then, resonance around like looking at our past selves at that time and being liberal or radical in certain ways, but then not in other ways, you know, that, bringing yeah, that, that, having, that grappling with, with your own, like understand, we were just talking about this earlier yes. this week of that moment <laughs> where we went from, you know, we were hardcore, like pro-lifers, you know, in high school because we were in Catholic school, you know, and then that, that moment that the light bulb went off and we started to put all the pieces together. Cause we too were those young girls who were looking at things and like, wait, how come the boys can do these things? And, you know, like, and then it just all, if there's like that moment, right. Where it just kind of all comes together and you're like, oh, okay. It's time mm-hmm. to move into a different phase. And, and like you said, the language, that's mm-hmm, a, yeah. a mm-hmm. huge piece to be able to say, mm-hmm. oh, this is patriarchy. This is sexism. And mm-hmm. to look back and say, that's what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and now mm-hmm. I don't have to feel shame about it because it wasn't my fault or it wasn't, you know, something that I did Absolutely. wrong. Absolutely. And how relationship though, you know, I love that your, your, your comadre, your friend there, right? She needed you. And I think that it's also those relationships in our lives that brought out compassion, creativity, a new radical way of imagining, you know, the future for Mm -hmm. all of us to have more liberation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we wanted to ask too, because 
you know, something that comes up for us a lot, you know, we've both been teaching in this field for many years and we've seen several presidencies at this point, you know, um, mm-hmm. and then having to like, you know, speak to like the larger political landscape. And like you said, but recognizing that, you know, for black women, women of color, it's always kind of been the same fight, right? The same mm-hmm. struggle. Mm-hmm. And what we come against a lot of times is those moments of like, we're still, we're still fighting the same stuff. Like we're still fighting these same battles. And how do we, um, I mean, we talk a lot about where we find the hope, but I think, you know, we want to ask you what sustains your, um, your energy to stay in this battle, you know, um, and what gives you hope? Yeah. Um, the power of the people really sustains me, right? Mm-hmm. When I see um, folks, you know, telling their stories and, mm-hmm. you know, when I see the light bulb go off, right, over someone's head, right? Um, when I see, you know, folks in my hometown will come up to me or send me messages like, girl, they would never put it publicly, but they're sending me this message Mm. like, thank you for what you're doing, right? Um, Because they still up in the church and they can't necessarily say that, you know, publicly yet, but they're getting Mm -hmm. it and they're still helping to move it, right? That's the kind of stuff like that, that people power, that people (sighs) energy, that is literally what what keeps me going every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, And what brings me hope is that, you know, I didn't come to this work in terms of like becoming this leader that I'm still like, what does that even mean? But Mm. right. It's like, I didn't come to this work from a policy perspective or a public health perspective or an academic academic perspective. Like that's not my entry point into movement work. Um, Mm. I am a creative, I'm an artist, you know, like I'm an organizer, cultural organizer. Um, And so whenever I got this title of like ED people, I was like, I didn't know how to really be in that because I was like, I'm not going to do it like other people do it. Right. Mm. (laughs) Um, That's not, it's not what I'm rooted in. And what I realized is that we're in like the biggest organizing moment of our lives, right? We truly Mm -hmm. are in this work. Um, And these systems of policy and public health and academia, all of them, their foundation is in white supremacy Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can use them, we can try to transform them, we can recreate within them, but their foundation is still going to be the same. So what gives me hope is Mm -hmm. like culture, like this cultural movement that's moving right now. I know we're going to talk about this amazing conference that we have coming up, but we we had we just announced that we're bringing in this cast from this new show, P Valley, right? And mm. so there are like amazing artists who are taking, mm. you know, our movement's work and putting it in these theatrical, beautiful storylines that's making it resonate with people in ways that policy and public health and, and sometimes academia, they're just not going to do. And so mm-hmm. that part of our work right now is giving me so much hope because I think that is where we have the most opportunity to really mm-hmm. build more of our collective people power, right? To be able to shift the shift, right? It's going to take culture to shift where we are. And that's what's giving me hope when I see these shows like P-Valley, when I see these artists using their platforms to talk about these issues, when Mm -hmm. I see people making music or creating document, like that kind of creative force is what's giving me hope right now. I live by Maria Simone. She says like, it's an, it's an artist's duty to reflect the times. Mm -hmm. That is what gives me hope is that the artists and their ability to tell our stories in ways 
that is so powerful and compelling and that can touch us, that that is what is going to create the shift that's needed to get us to the liberation that we're all seeking. That's what's giving. I, I love that so much. I think that, you know, coming from, (laughs) from academia, where absolutely we recognize the limitations of of what we can do um, within that space. But oftentimes that part, that cultural production part that um, is dismissed as like frivolous or as, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's just, you know, whatever. And, and I've always been of the mind of like, no, that's, that's the real like stuff, right? That's what, that's where, where, that's where real stuff is happening. And so I I appreciate you saying that that is actually central, you know, to a lot of Mm -hmm. the work that you're doing, because, um, you know, I think even when we talk, like when we deal with our students, we're getting a new batch of 18, you know, to 25 year olds every semester, you know, every yeah. year. Two and some, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like on these new apps and in this new like world, you know, and I'm like, there's, they're already immersed in that. Why yeah. not, you know, reach them through those avenues rather than, you know, forcing them, you know, into this other, like, elitist <laughs> way of, of, of dialogue. Right. Um, yeah, so I appreciate I, I, that, that that's where it's at. Yeah, for sure. And I would just say this last little piece, I think that what makes me even more hopeful and excited about culture and, and the, the, the power of it, right. And us to be able to use it as like an organizing strategically, like to strategically move things is that this is the place where we get to fail and, and mm. recreate again. Right. Like mm-hmm. systems, like, Certain systems are created in a way that makes you feel like you have to have the right way to do it. There's a one plus one equals two. Like there, there's a there's a way that you have to do the work. That is culture doesn't hold the same boundaries in that way. Mm-mm. You actually get to try a whole bunch of different stuff and <sighs> fail and win and try again and recreate. Like <sighs> that is that's the power, right? And you know, I just had this conversation with my staff recently because we were debriefing one of the events that we did and folks were like, oh, we needed more time. Oh, we needed more of this. We need more of that. And I, I felt them like I respected where they were coming from. We needed to hear that. But I also had to respond and say that I just want you all to understand that this is the way the white supremacy culture shapes us to mm-hmm. make us think that we have to have things perfect, that we have mm-hmm. to have everything in place. Mm-hmm. that's not how we get to liberation it is not going to be a strategically mapped plan it is going to take us diverting moving jumping skipping we got to do all the things right to get there and I was like it's okay if we if we fall back a little bit if we fall down and we got to get back up just know that that is part mm-hmm. of our process so anyway I just that's what really excites me about this, this, uh, this culture. I love it I love that that so that curiosity, that playfulness. I mean, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about our kids, you know, and I'm thinking about those spaces of healing. Um, we do. And I want to, I want to honor your time here. We were, our last question was around networks of care. I hear you talking about this collective artistic power. And I also yeah. hear this conference coming up around, let's talk about sex. Yes. And I, and I see it really, um, meeting that need, speaking to that, doing that. So could you speak a little bit more to this conference? Yeah, you know, community is at the heart of our movement's work, right? Like this movement was created from a, in a very relational community driven kind of way, right? And that is what has made this movement as transformative, as powerful as I believe it is, right? Um, Because community and and care is at the center of everything that we do. 
And that's what's made it, that's what's made this conference that's coming up so important. So we've been hosting our national Let's Talk About Sex conference since 2007. It has become <laughs> the largest, you know, sexual and reproductive justice conference in the country. And we are very proud of that. And we do see our role as a convener, right? Um, you know, we, we do that from a very revolutionary place. We see it as a revolutionary act, right? To be able to mm. create a container as safe a space as possible to bring our people together to do the work and to build our power. And that's exactly what we're doing at this conference. You know, we're keeping yeah. community and care at the center as always and making sure that people feel that and know that even in these hard times that we are here with each other. Um, but our theme this year is our blueprint for a body revolution. And, mm. you know, the mothers of this movement, they gave us a powerful framework, right? That is like completely changed the way that we think about our sexual and reproductive lives, and just in the way that we do social justice work in general, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah. we, we, we've always been intersectional. We've always incorporated the human rights frame. Like we've always done these things that people are now talking about, oh, we should think about intersectionality, right? <laughs> we've done this since from the very beginning. Um, so we, they gave us this powerful framework. It is now our duty to build mm -hmm. the blueprint that is going to get us to the liberation that we deserve. And, mm. Um, mm. and it has to start with the body. Right. I think that we've tried to start this liberation work from many different angles. Right. Which are all super important. But I think that where, you know, this political fight has led us is back to the very thing that's our first environment. That is our first. Like it is it's mm -hmm. at the core of mm -hmm. every piece of work that mm -hmm. we do. Right. Mm -hmm. All roads lead back to reproductive justice and to this body of mm -hmm. ours. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so. um that's what we're really excited about to really, you know, um, center this work and, and make the connections and help people understand that this work is not a side item to liberation is actually at the center of it. So that's what we're going to do. It's going down in Dallas, Texas, um, the last weekend in August, the 26th or the 28th, I think that is. But let's talk about sexconference.com is the website of folks. I mean, we st there's still some time if folks want to get up in there. <laughs> we also have a virtual option for folks to get in too. Um, so yeah, we're really pumped and excited that this is a space. And a lot of folks asked us, you're going to, you going to Texas? You're going to Ground Zero? <laughs> to, like, yeah, Ground Zero. <laughs> And we said, absolutely, we absolutely are. We're not mm -hmm. going to let yeah. any of these folks drive us away from the necessary work that's needed in Texas still, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not going to be scared or allow ourselves to be in fear um, of doing the work that we know that's most important for our community. So we're stepping mm -hmm. to that boldly and safely, <laughs> right? Uh -huh, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. But we're definitely stepping to it um, two feet down, strong to the ground. We're ready to go. This is a perfect segue, you know, for you know, our next guest who will be talking about the work in Texas, um, your comadre, Marsha Jones. And um, I'm so excited. Yeah, <laughs> so excited. And I can't wait. We can't wait to share this on all of our social platforms. I hope some of those religious people I grew up with see that, uh, you know, there's a let's talk about sex conference. You know, <laughs> if they, they weren't aware before, there is now. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much, Monica. We thank just appreciate everything that you do and the continued work of sister song um i love that you say you know that's where that's where revolution happens you know is, mm -hmm. is in that and and i i love that because I, I i truly believe that as well so thank you so much for sure for thank you us. both so much this is incredible thank you to your listeners and yeah i'm really excited for us just to continue to build and do powerful work and just keep getting free, good people. That's all we got. That's all we can keep doing is getting free. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Press record again. So I, we are here with mm -hmm. another guest. 
Um, continuing to talk about reproductive justice, uh, a topic that is near and dear to our hearts and to our work and so central to our work inside and outside of the university. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and um, let our guests introduce themselves and then we'll get into our fun conversation. Welcome, Marsha Jones. I'm Marsha Jones and I'm located in Dallas, Texas, and I am the um, executive director and the uh, one of the founding uh, founders of the Afia Center. And uh, the Afia Center was, it's just interesting how things move. Um, we always knew that, you know, so I personally didn't know anything about reproductive justice. That's the thing. Mm. I, I come from like this really church girl kind of um, background. Uh, didn't ever see myself as a feminist because I didn't see feminism that looked like mm. me. Mm. And so I didn't think that that was a thing for me anyway. Uh, mm. I was a teenage mom. So I come from, my family was, it wasn't so bad, but uh, I was a teenage mom. So I didn't have to come out of school or anything like that. But as soon as I got out of school, I felt obligated to go to mm. college really quick so that I could get a job, right? So mm. I didn't have time for all of that stuff. And mm. I really just kind of rolled into it. And all of that is to say who the Afia Center is. Uh, HIV came on, like this mm. thing happened. And all of my friends, I, I remember hearing on the radio that all these black, you know, like it didn't say black men, it said like all these homosexual men were gonna be dead because this is the mm. 80s when they said this. And mm. all of my friends, all of my really close men friends were black gay men because mm. my nephew, we grew up together as almost a sister and brother because my parents were older when they had him or when my parents were older when they had me. So I had really like older, older siblings. Mm -hmm. And I just knew that day when I heard that on the radio, I said, all of my friends are gonna die. Cause I couldn't figure out in my head, what was it that black gay men were doing that white ones were not doing? Mm. <laughs> you know, like they wasn't talking about black men at that time like that. And so I, after losing, and it was like prophetic because I did lose all of my friends that was in my inner circle who were black gay men. Wow. And we also went to church. I, I, I knew them through church. And I was like pissed. I couldn't understand mm -hmm. how we could be talking about love in the church. And we just let these men die like this and shame and mm -hmm. all of this. And I, I just like, it wasn't mm -hmm. coming together for me. And so mm -hmm. after the last death, my daughter was 17. We knew, we knew that college was going to be okay for her. I left corporate America because uh, I had mm. made my last deathbed. I made my last deathbed promise that mm. I was going to do something to change mm. what HIV mm. looked like among Black gay men because I didn't know mm. Black women were getting it. Mm. And so, in my quest to do this work for Black gay men, uh, and specifically in the church, because remember the church was all I knew. I wanted to change the hearts mm. and the minds of people in the church. But I still loved mm. God. I just didn't like the people at church. <laughs> so <I wanted> to... <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole like <laughs> uh -huh. a whole other thing and so i eventually started i met this amazing young sister by the by the name of mukam tagara jandaya and she introduced me to reproductive justice and she had she was a black feminist i had never met a black mm -hmm. feminist before mm -hmm. and she had just left let's talk about sex in washington dc Mm. <laughs> she introduced me yeah and I knew because by this time I was working diligently to bring focus and bring light 
to black women because nobody were talking about the black women who were dying, not just mm. getting HIV, but dying like at mm. such a high rate. And I knew mm. it wasn't because of who they had sex with or even how often it was none of that. I knew that to like to really fight this fight around uh, HIV, I had to have a framework that was centered in social justice and human rights. So mm. while I did know about black feminism and I mean, I didn't know about feminism and women's movement, <clears throat> being 60 now so at that time I was like 40-ish I guess I did know social justice and human rights okay. and so I wanted to do this HIV work in a way that encompassed that that it told black women's stories in a way that we got to talk about it was the social injustices inequalities it was the systems of oppression that really drove HIV among black women not who and how we sleep and have sex. That was bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that didn't work for me. And so meeting Mukam and being introduced to reproductive justice, I was like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That is the way we tell the mm -hmm. story. That is the way we tell mm -hmm. the story. So that's how this organization got started. Uh, we got started and we wanted to make sure that we were um, working to transform even how Black women saw our own selves in uh the transforming of our relationships with our sexual and reproductive health um, mm. and reproductive lives and sexual lives. And so we started that way, always knew that we were founded and grounded in reproductive justice. It's just that HIV is the thing that propelled us mm. into this work. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm. until later when I saw uh, Wendy Davis that, and I was like traveling doing the HIV stuff, still talking about reproductive justice and stuff. And I saw the, and it's, the thing was happening and how these white women would call me like, well, you know, we having a meeting, come. I was like, what the fuck is Ro? What did Ro do? Anniversary for Ro be like, we're doing this, we're, who is this? Why y'all calling me? I don't even know y'all. And so I finally said, hey, I gotta do this, you know? And so I, I was gonna go, but I didn't, I think I was sick. But what happened to me, I was looking at the Wendy Davis thing and the Texas State House was packed and they were talking about abortions and black women having more abortions than anybody else and all of this mm. stuff. But the whole damn state house was white women. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody yeah, yeah. getting up to the podium talking were white women. Yeah. And I got, I was like, no, we're not doing this. Mm, we're not yeah. doing this. If we're going to yeah. be talking about black women and abortions, we're going to be telling yeah. a different story. We're going to be telling the uh -huh. entire story. We're not going to be yeah. running up into this podium trying to use reproductive justice in a way that makes it more palatable mm. around white Texas politicians uh, rather than saying abortion. Now, we're not going to do that. If, if we're going to be talking about Black women, Black women are going to be telling that story. Mm -hmm. And I made a promise mm -hmm. then that the Afia Center was coming back to Texas. We had never officially mm -hmm. left, but I was going to start running all around the country. Texas mm. is on fire. Black women were burning up and I was coming here to this. I was coming back home and doing this work in this state, whether they invited me to the table or not, I was coming because I am at the end of the day, a grassroots organizer. We don't <laughs> typically ask to come in, we come in. And so that's what brought me here. And that's why I'm here. And so I have like, literally, we have literally at the field center been fighting this um, abortion fight and making sure that we help folks to understand the impact of when you do stuff like this, the impact of it to uh, black bodies. Ugh. I just I feel like we just went to church. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I mean, we both grew up in super religious. Oh, I'm a Virgo. She's Virgo. I I can totally. True to heart. Okay. Okay. I love it. Monica Cancer. Yeah, they they divorced when I was like four, three or four. My mom left me with my dad, and so I came back to live with her when I was twelve. And on my thirteenth birthday, she had given me this gift, and I was like, "Ooh," because it was heavy, and I just knew (laughs) it was something in there. I opened it. Only living with me for one year, I opened it, and it was a book. uh, It was an an astrological book, and it was about (laughs) Virgos. You should read it. (laughs) because in just one year my mom was real clear about what she was gonna be living with it's your birthday it's your it's your birthday september 4th um by chance september 1 Oh, nice. That's so we're close. We're close. And I'm yeah. loving this. It's like, you know, because Monica wow. and Renee have the same birthday. And yeah. I'm loving this and we're cancers. Know, Virgo cancer energy going on. And I, I want to say, you know, you did. You just took us, you told us uh, your story in such a powerful way. I mean, we've been saying the resonance is clear too. We all, we grew up in church. Um, and we too, you know, from that to like, it was important for us to have our story be heard. We don't want someone else to tell our story for us, particularly any space of whiteness or maleness. You know, we want to like be clear. And so I really just deep resonance. I love the work you're doing. We, we, we just celebrate that so much. And we wanted to ask, you know, and I think you've already spoken to this, you know, since the changes with Roe v. Wade, has you, have you seen, um, what, what is the impact that you've seen? You know, I think you've addressed the whiteness of it. Um, is there something on the ground that you could speak to um, at the center happening now, you know? So my biggest fear now that Roe v. Wade, uh, now with this overturning, my fear was before the overturning, right? Mm-hmm. But even with Senate Bill <laughs> 8, uh, my fear is, two, is twofold. One, when you start using language that sounds like um, legal, criminal, criminalizing in any kind of way, with folk who are more closely related to the criminal justice system in a negative way, there's going to be health impact. There's going to be economic impact. There's going to be all of that, right? Yeah. Uh, by that, I mean, people are going to uh, take their own ways to take care of themselves. Are we going to force people into continued poverty? Um, because every time there's unintended po- uh, pregnancies for black and brown uh, folk, uh, it um it uh, adds on generational poverty, adds on to generational poverty. So mm-hmm. I'm always concerned about that and just the whole fear around criminalization and folk not seeking the health care that they need in times like this when they are the least connected from health care in a state like Texas. So I'm thinking about folk having atop, uh, 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 atopic pregnancies, which we've already had that in the state of Texas since Roe v. Wade overturned. And sitting in the uh, in the emergency room and doctors not knowing can they or can they not take care of this when doctors are very clear that the top pregnancy is not a pregnancy because you can't carry a uh, can't carry a baby in in a um, in your tubes and so mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what the death rate is going to look like I'm thinking about mm-hmm. we uh, we we have heard through the grapevine that there are mm-hmm. folk who've in, been in much need of abortions where there have been violent attacks, mm. violent rape um, inside of homes uh, where um, people were, where the folk who were raped and impregnated uh, was afraid to t- tell the person that they were living with, like maybe their mom or whatever, um, because they weren't sure if they got an abortion, would they go to jail or would their mother mm. go to jail? 
And so, you know, um, uh, will this, per you know, on top of the harm and the trauma that folk are always live already living with, will they now have to uh, carry this this rapist uh, uh, baby to full term? Then uh, these are things that we know. There's nothing that I heard. I, I got <laughs> this from the grapevine, right? Uh, I got it directly from the horse's mouth. I mean, uh, yeah. a situation where people are calling us, asking us, can they still use their, um, can they still use their uh, over-the-counter, I mean, their uh, SMA, their mice and miso, um, what happens if you're still using it? I'm bleeding, 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 and we don't know if we can tell them what to do if they are bleeding, 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 uh, mm -hmm. but we are afraid to tell them to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is like real. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I just real. had one of my staff people call me this morning. Um, that's mm -hmm. why I, I was waiting on y'all, but it was okay because I was kind of on the call mm -hmm. because she don't know what to do. And she's like, you know what? You know, shit, do I quit? You know, like, like we were literally talking about it on the call. What happens if I don't work for an agency who care for Black, for, care for women? But then I know somebody needs some help and I know this information because I did work for that organization at one time. Mm. Will I go to jail if I tell them what they need to do? So we're Ugh. just in this very uncomfortable space. Like this is happening right now. Um, yeah. We don't know yet about the people who've been forced to carry full term because most, most women who don't have resources don't go to the hospital until they're in labor anyway. So there mm. will be forced full term uh, pregnancies, I speculate and think about what's going to happen to folks of trans experience who still mm. have a womb, who could possibly still get pregnant in a mm -hmm. state that can, mm -hmm. that we understand there's no respect for folks mm -hmm. of trans experience in Texas. Like we're still trying to force, uh, let teachers tell on parents mm -hmm. who's going to support their children at the earliest age possible, which is the healthiest time to do it in their mm -hmm. transitioning. And so that in itself says that Texas don't care about folks with trans experience. And so mm -hmm. what's going on? So that mm -hmm. I haven't seen yet, but that's boggling my mind. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to folks of trans experience who gets pregnant at this time? Will they be able to, um, they won't be able to get an abortion. And what's that going to do with their mm -hmm. mental health? Those mm -hmm. are the things that I see us being faced with in the state of Texas that, that impact black folk and the fear of being criminalized. Uh, mm -hmm. We're working that out right now. Are you the person getting the abortion going to be criminalized or is it just the people mm -hmm. who are providing the abortion? There's still a lot of ambiguity right there. There's ambiguity about how fines can or cannot show up. So we're kind of like in a holding space, but yet mm -hmm. we can't do anything because we know that if we do something now, our government can come in and retro. We already mm -hmm. have funds who's in court wow. right now because of that little window where they mm -hmm. could give abortions. They did, <coughs> and now they're in court. So we're wow. in very, it's a very interesting time mm -hmm. in the state of Texas. And I used to hear people say, the, however, whatever happens, happens in Texas, there go the world. And mm -hmm. so Texas is have such a, um, such a, 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 an impact on how other backwards governments run because we're a backwards mm. government in Texas that we set the stage for how harm happens in other governmental bodies. Mm. Uh, right now, we were uh, successful in passing some small rendition of that GRACE Act 
the, mm -hmm. in which we're asking, we're essentially saying to cities to mm. deprioritize um, the arresting of folk uh, or the criminalizing mm -hmm. of folk who's trying to get abortions or people who are doing those abortions, like make it so minimal that somebody throwing trash down would be more likely to be, be mm. criminalizing somebody. But here's the thing with that. Say if criminalization do come up and the police decide they're not, okay, we're not going to arrest Marsha. But what if Marsha already have a warrant? Because mm. you, know, um. so you know they're going to run my ID. Mm. <laughs> they're going to run my ID if I'm Black, right? And so what happens then? So even though these laws are in place, I can't get really excited about them because I'm still working with women who have closer proximity to the mm -hmm. criminal justice system, who mm -hmm. in spite of all of the good that the Grace Act could do, could still mm -hmm. be harmed. Yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a Band-Aid, right? A temporary, yes. you know, Band-Aid at best, right? Um, on this, uh, yeah, I mean, we really appreciate the the giving us this full context. Again, you know, we're in California and, on one hand, I think there's this maybe sense of false security, right? Like, oh, we're in California, mm -hmm. you know, we're in a liberal state, like we're okay. Um, but I always, you know, cause we're women's studies professors and I always tell my students, I go, we have to be one, <laughs> we have to be careful with how, you know, much we rely on that sense of security, this idea that we're in this liberal state. Number two, um, for women of color, for black women, access right to all of this has always been an issue and right. you know even even more so now so i think we have to really be careful with how we how we rely on that um but i but i appreciate you giving us that on the ground context of what's happening in texas because i think it's so easy for us to kind of be well that's over there you know out of sight out of mind but to see how um deeply you know it's impacting like on you know, every minute, right? You're dealing with this, you know, as we speak, um, I think helps really paint a fuller picture of what's really happening. It's, it's really bad. Um, yeah. I don't think people even understand how really bad it is. Yeah. And we'll make it even worse. Like we were an abortion, we were a practical support fund, right? Mm -hmm. And even in a practical support fund, we found ourselves having to provide funding for the procedure because when people come to the table with zero, I don't care how much money, I don't care how much you pledge. If you don't pledge the whole amount, they're going to still need it. So then that, that, that other 25 or a hundred dollars become, it becomes like practical support, right? Because it's anything that needs to happen to assure yeah. that the procedure itself is done. Mm -hmm. And so we're in this very, in this space, because even if these people do get an opportunity to get out of the state, to get an abortion, if they get one, they're still going to be down off of work for a while. They're still going to need resources mm -hmm. to pay mm -hmm. their rent. They're still going to need yeah. to take care of their children. And so now we're right there in that position where we're trying to see after they've had the abortion, can we then help them? We're not really sure about that, mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. still happening. So I'm saying all that to say funders may think in states like Texas or wherever, where we can't outright get an abortion, they don't need to be here. Our support mm. don't need to be here. Yes, it needs to be here mm -hmm. even more because the fallout yeah. is going to be so great. It yeah. is going to be so great that without support, even like, so California, maybe we say California don't get so excited 
because right now, because we know it could just be a change of voting that could change mm -hmm. all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we need California to keep talking about it, you know? We yeah. need New York to keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. And we need for people to really look at it from a reproductive justice lens so that they mm -hmm. can tell the entire story, the entire experience of what's happening here. People are going to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, people are going, can possibly lose housing. How mm -hmm. do you, a woman who's a person who's uh, pregnant and don't want to be pregnant inside of a home where you're suffering violence, how do you mm -hmm. comfortably not, how do you comfortably or safely not go full term with that pregnancy? And if you do find a way to mm -hmm. not go full term with that pregnancy, how do you then return home and heal? Yeah. You know, there's just so many, so many pieces to it. So that, many, uh, so with, many pieces. It's just layers. You know, what is that they layers. say in that movie with Eddie Murphy and him, like when he's trying to <laughs> talking about the uh, org and the donkey, like there's layers, <laughs> there's layers. To yeah. It, but there are, there are really layers to this story and we don't always get to yeah. really examine how we just kind of be focused on that abortion. Yeah. And I love reproductive justice because it provides us with the opportunity to mm -hmm. speak beyond just the abortion, but also understanding that the abortion and the access to that abortion is equally mm -hmm. as important, but it is the other pieces of it that uh, mm -hmm. tells the story. So I think we're gonna end then with asking you a question that we actually asked Monica, because, mm -hmm. you know, again, I think it's important that you call out, you know, states like California and New York, um, where in that, you know, we need to be, we need to find ways how we can, um, you know, be helpful or contribute, you know, right, to what's going on there in Texas. Um, it's so interesting. I think, well, we both have, I have family in Texas, Christina has family in New Mexico, you know, you know, <laughs> conservative states. Um, and so we understand, you know, we have direct connections there. So I think it's important for us to figure, you know, to understand like how we, use reproductive justice as a framework to recognize that it's not just oh we're we're cool it's okay it's you know there's it's and it's much more than just about abortion um and birth control but really this is um an issue of that sovereignty i mean this is like oh. this is genocide really i mean let's yeah. just let's just name it what it is mm -hmm. and we we can't just sort of sit by um you know, and watch that happen, you know, without yeah. trying to, to do something. That being said, you know, what we asked Monica is that we recognize that this fight for reproductive justice in all its layers, in all its, its facets is something that has been going on for a long time and is going to continue for a long time. And we are in a very particular, like you said, you know, Texas is on fire. So what sustains you? What mm -hmm. helps you to not lose hope or lose energy to continue doing this work? Because day in and day out, it can get very grueling. And, and when we talk about, you said, you know, mental health um, for trans people, I think we often overlook the mental health of activists, right? And yeah. the ones that are on the ground doing this work. And so what helps to sustain you and what gives you hope? So it's interesting as we talk about mental health, I'm actually supposed to be on sabbatical. 
<laughs> we hear you on that. <laughs> I kind of call it sabbating, you know, because the leak kind of brought me back in uh, a little bit. But one of the things, mental health piece is important. Self-care, you know, uh, reproductive mm-hmm. justice is grounded in uh, the, uh, this idea around self-care. And I think one of the things that ground me, and I don't want to give like funders too much credit, but one of the things that's keeping me kind of grounded is that the way in which um, Black organizations doing reproductive justice, we're not where we need to be yet, but the way we're being supported is changing and we're and it's changing based on the needs, what we need inside of our spaces to be well. And mm-hmm. so having some, not all, but some uh, funders understand that we can't keep working five and five days a week, 10, mm-hmm. 12 hours a day, traveling mm-hmm. every day. Like if that's got to be a part of what our report looks like, then we're not going to be able to. So having funders mm-hmm. say, hey, you don't have to put all of you don't. We hear you be able to do this work in a way that's safe and that's healthy for you. Not mm. all, but for the ones that have, that have made it kind of bearable because I think about my team a lot. They, I'm at that place in my life at the organization where I don't have to do as much of the heavy lifting. And my whole team can't take a whole year off if they choose to. Yeah. And so, uh, and I realized that, and that's another thing that make me come back because I feel a little guilty, you know, like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like how do I mm-hmm. and they, but I have a, I have an amazing team and they're like no you know we got this so that keeps me grounded having people around me keeps me grounded and and surprisingly my faith keeps me grounded mm-hmm. as I said to you all earlier um I was done with the people mm-hmm. but I have never ever uh been done with my faith Mm-hmm. and faith mm-hmm. looks so differently for me now it's not just mm-hmm. christianity or whatever it's a very spiritual thing mm-hmm. a very spiritual connection that i have that is beyond what i've been taught all of my life of this 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 god that's like gonna take this whip or whatever so this that looks so much like the oppressor that mm-hmm. i am already having mm-hmm. to deal with so i have that um i have the, mm-hmm. the sisterhood you know Uh, Mm -hmm. I know that I can always lean to other Black folk, and not just Black folk, but other folk, uh, other non, I usually say non-white, (laughs) non-cis. Yes. Yes. Non-white, non-hetero. Because we have to be clear, you know, that white women tend to be as complicit in this as others. Mm -hmm. So I, I, having that, uh, I know that it's going to be different this go around. I feel like I always feel like we can win. If we Mm -hmm. fight, we can win. Uh, Being able to provide, being in a space now where we can bring, we can provide information in a different kind of way, bring more people in. Using a reproductive justice land allow us to make connections that I believe that wasn't made at the beginning of uh, when we started to do the fight with Mm Roe. I think we have more resources at hand. Uh, than we've ever had before there mm-hmm. this impact is greater now than it's ever been before so that mm-hmm. means that more people will be in the fight and so i just don't give up on people mm-hmm. and humankind uh, mm-hmm. i know that sounds a little like all mushy mm-hmm. and everything but i don't i don't ever go into a fight looking at the al i always go into a fight looking at the w and i take those wins mm-hmm. all the way across every win is a win for me 
And so those are the things that keep me grounded, knowing that we are creating a space for so many amazing young black folk to take this torch. Like I'm not going to have to work as hard as Loretta did. Mm. You're right, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like Loretta and them, the mothers of this movement, they laid down such a grant, like the foundation that they laid down for us. Mm-hmm. If we take that and keep moving it, nah, I'm, I'm going to get to retire in a couple of years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's all because of the work that Loretta and them did. Yeah. Really, Avery, yeah. women like that is because of what they did. I literally yeah. can say, I'm going to retire. Yeah. Monica is still young enough to do this, but she won't have to even get as tired as I got. Oh. As I get. And so, we are creating a space where we are really passing on this torch to some amazing, mm-hmm. like amazing badass. Cause I know I have a badass group of young uh, folk working at the Afield Center. They may not know all of this RJ stuff, but they are learning it. They're bringing passion. They're not scared. You're like, no, we ain't scared. You know, they are willing to fight. And so uh, that's what I, that's the thing that, that encouraged me. When I look back now or look to the side, I see amazingness standing on side of me. And I'll say this in end. When the Senate Bill 8 happened, I got an email because I don't I don't travel a lot if it's not young. If, if young, if folk are asking me to come talk, they usually like my my team do a hell of a they do a whole job of vetting. Mm-hmm. And so when I got the email from this young lady who wanted me to come speak in Austin, uh my one of my people said, Well, you you look at her last night, you know she's not black. Cause I ain't want to drive all the way to Austin, you know, do all of that. And to people who already have resources. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I don't care about her name. She's 12. And so my pro, my director mm-hmm. looked at me and I said, I don't 12. care. I don't care if she's green, yellow, pink, or orange. She's 12. She's wow. 12 and she's organizing a whole ass rally. And she's yeah. bringing people to Austin to talk about what, Senate Bill 8 is going to do to the lives of future Texans. I don't care what color she is. What what happened with me that day is that I realized that we're going to win and it's going to be the younger people that's going to win. We're not even going to have to necessarily be fighting a black and white fight as much as we have had to fight it in the past. Because what I love about so many, not all, but so many of the young folk, queer and gender expanded and Mm-hmm. all of the mm-hmm. other pieces that go mm-hmm. to this like they standing like they're just not gonna do what what even mm-hmm. what i did mm-hmm. and so just think at 12 at mm-hmm. 12 she's already ready to tell the state of texas the harm that they're doing to her and so that is my that is my thing that keep me hopeful uh is that i know that the, the kids the young mm-hmm. folk are going to be the win because uh. they ain't scared they ain't even scared not to vote they like, <laughs> I feel that going. hope. I feel that hope so <laughs> immensely thinking that generationally thinking about those that went before us, those that are coming. I just, yeah. just feel it in my body. That's that, 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 that gives that, me thank hope you. too. That gives me, the, I always say young people, you know, when, when we get our students coming into our class and I'm like, you all have the energy. <laughs> I'm tired. I did my marching days. I did my, you know, like y'all are the ones to go out and be out there. And, and they sometimes come in with this language already that I didn't mm-hmm. have, you know, when mm-hmm. I was 18 mm-hmm. and then I'm like, man, I'm still here trying to figure stuff out, trying to unlearn 
you know, a lifetime of oppression and you all just kind of already know this stuff. And so I'm like, okay, we're, we're doing good then we're, we're going to be okay. You know, we're going to be okay going forward. And so I appreciate that, you know, again, resonating so much with that hope is in, is in the young people and, and trust. Cause I think a lot of people want to dismiss young people too and be like, Oh, Mm -hmm. they're just, and I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) That is where, you know, the future is going to be. So I appreciate that. We're going to win this. I love it. We are going to win this. Thank you so much, Marsha, for being here. We so much appreciate everything that you shared with us and and your Mm -hmm. work and and your faith and um, and we celebrate your sabbatical. I just want to say we yeah we just came back from our sabbatical too. (laughs) So so we hear you on how how hard we recognize how hard it can be, but also how important that is you know, to rest. So thank you so, so much for, for being here with us.